Good morning. It's hard to believe we're already a month away from Christmas. It's, if you're like me, it's, it's hard to believe that we just, we didn't finish up VBS last week. It seemed like it was that, uh, just close ago, and we should be putting the finishing touches on church camp. Because Mount Pisgah is a church on the move. People are being baptized, Bible studies are growing, and our county is seeing Jesus in who we are and how we work and live. Refuel is discipling new kids, and uh, Sunday morning is seeing record numbers. Mountain Pisgah is seeing overall steady growth. It's not just a big boom we drop off, a big boom and we drop off, which is the result of people stepping up and stepping up to minister to each other and their friends and family, because that's how the church works. Uh, Paul uses the sibling language like brother and sister when he talks about how the church relates to each other. We're family. And that's why the season of Advent is so important. Life has its, its natural seasons, kind of an ebb and a flow. <clears throat> and that's just how life works. We have fast seasons. We have slow seasons. We pick up. We slow down. Uh, Christmas is the time to celebrate Christ's birth, uh, our present hope. Uh, <clears throat> it should be a period when the Christians of the world are the happiest people around. We should have parties and we should celebrate. Lent, though, another part of the Christian calendar, isn't so much a time for celebration as it is for preparation and remembering and preparing our hearts and minds for Easter. It's a bit more subdued, you might say, than uh, Advent and Christmas. But what about Advent? What is Advent for? Is it a celebration? Is it preparation? Something in between? Well, let's think about what Advent means. Advent is a word that simply means arrival. It comes from the ancient world when a king or an emperor or just anybody important would come through your town or your village, you would anticipate the advent or the arrival of that person. Because when they came, it wasn't just your average Joe dropping in unannounced to bother you. That was someone who you might never see again. That was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of event. So people today still wait with anticipation for the advent of someone special. For the church, then, advent is a time of anticipation. It's not a celebration, it's not preparation, it's anticipation. It's a time for learning how to wait, for waiting. Now, why in the world would we be expected to wait a whole month, just spend a whole month practicing waiting? We wait everywhere, and we should be pretty good at it by now, right? I don't know if you're a glutton for punishment like me and you went to Walmart and Kroger last week, but you waited a lot longer than normal last week in stores like that, didn't you? You probably even waited in different aisles, waiting for people to move out of your way. We wait for the results of a test. We wait to hear if our kids made it into the program, the school we wanted them to get into. We wait for answers. If we're terrible people, we make other people wait. But we don't wait for the things that we don't want or need. Waiting for things that we want and need is a great definition of hope. That's why, on the first week of Advent, we dedicate our Sunday to the idea of hope, of waiting for hope. And hope can be a funny thing because when we hear many people talk about hope, they hope it doesn't rain. They hope they get into the program they wanted to get into. They hope this new job pans out. For much of the world, hope is nothing more than wishful thinking and tossing a quarter into a fountain. 
There's no security in the kind of hope the world knows. But for the converted, for the Christian, hope is much more grounded in reality. Wishful thinking is not hope at all. If anything, wishful thinking is just fatalism, where everything is designed to happen and our job is to just deal with it. That's not hope. That's dread disguised as hope. Christian hope, which is rooted in historical fact, is both sustainable and sustaining. It is truth, so it, sus- it sustains. It's not going anywhere. And it's truth, so it sustains us as well. The historical fact of the Christian faith is what makes the Christmas story so amazing, uh, so miraculous, just so incredible that it actually happened. And it's worthy of a whole season of anticipation and waiting. So take a look at this quick video about uh, what the Christmas story is all about and listen for words like waiting, anticipating. You'll find just how, how embedded into the Christmas story that actually is. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. She was growing into a teenager and was living then in the obscure village of Nazareth in Galilee. She gathered the grain during the day and tended the lamp laid into the watches of the night. Her father knew the dedication of her work, her mother the kindness of her heart, her friends the curve of her smile. She stood on the threshold of womanhood. Among all the girls in the village, she had been noticed, chosen, betrothed, a child bride before whom lay only possibility. Her father could walk with pride in the city gates. Her mother could rest in the comfort of her daughter's future security. But then he came, unexpected, unannounced, spoke openly and without shame of pregnancy, virginity, and a son. Things men never discussed, and women only whispered about behind closed doors. She questioned him about the particulars, but not about the promise. She knew the prophecies, and the angel's words rang true. She would be scorned and rejected, labeled it an adulteress in whispers and glances. There would be no more carefree walks to the market, no more happy trips to the well. Four hundred years her people had waited for hope, but God had been silent. Now he had spoken. The wait was about to end. Forty weeks... And then, Emmanuel, God with us. Do you hear the language of Advent? It's, it's waiting, it's anticipation, it's, it's waiting and waiting and waiting for God to move. There were 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament writings and the beginning of the New Testament. For 400 years, people like Mary and Joseph, good Jewish people, waited. And that is what the faithful hoped in long before us. That is Advent. And because waiting is so hard, because waiting does not come naturally to any of us, today we'll take a look at a story in the book of Luke that illustrates exactly what we are waiting for and what God intends for us to do while we wait. 
will find that God honors faith that expects his promises to come true. God honors faith that expects his promises to come true. For good Jewish people like Mary and Joseph, even if it happened for them a lot sooner than it did, than they expected it to, they knew they would have a child, and when they did, they would follow what the law told them to do, which was go to the temple and make a glad sacrifice, especially with the firstborn son. And this is exactly where we find them in today's passage. Mary, Joseph, and the Jesus child entering the temple to do exactly what they know they should be doing. And when they enter the temple, another man named Simeon comes in with them. And this is the only mention of this particular Simeon in the whole Bible, but he serves a crucial, unforgettable role. He is a righteous and devout man. That's what the Bible tells us he is. Whenever anyone is called righteous, it's because God made them righteous. Righteousness never comes of our own volition. And righteousness in Scripture is defined as believing God. That's righteousness. Think back to the story of Abraham in Genesis. God gives Abraham righteousness because Abraham believed God's promises. So right from the very beginning of this passage, we have clues as to what we should be waiting for. Believers are waiting for God to fulfill his promises that have yet to be fulfilled. God promises Abraham that he would make Abraham the father of too many people to count. And obviously, Abraham couldn't live long enough to see that actually happen. So he believed, he anticipated, and he waited. And most of all, he trusted that God's promises would come true. Simeon had been waiting for what Scripture calls the consolation of Israel. Consolation just means comfort. It means kind of a break from the anxiety. Unfortunately, most of the Jewish people at that time, and many still today, hoped to see political power be their consolation. They had confused their real problem, which was spiritual, with what were political people problems. But this isn't a Jewish issue, is it? It's not. It's a people issue. How many people today place all their hope in politicians and people in power? We saw this in living color the past 18 months, didn't we? Politicians do what is politically viable at any given moment, And there are many reasons to be involved in the system, but comfort is not one of them. In the next verse, the consolation of Israel is defined for us as the Messiah. The one person specifically chosen to bring comfort and a break from all the anxiety to Israel. And this comfort would clearly not be political. He would not raise up a new kingdom among the people. It would be a spiritual kingdom that he would raise up, not a political one. So here's the danger in placing too much uh, emphasis or hope in political powers. They cannot supply the spiritual consolation or comfort that we really need. By letting us know that it was God's spirit that moved Simeon to go to the temple and then to speak to Mary and Joseph and bless them, Luke is essentially validating everything that Simeon is saying. The Holy Spirit let Simeon know beforehand that he would see the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, in person. And the Holy Spirit then let Simeon also know when the Messiah had arrived in the temple. Simeon was so overjoyed that one of God's promises had been been fulfilled in his sight and during his lifetime that when he took the baby Jesus in his arms, he prayed the prayer that you heard read today. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light 
for a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What an honor to have been Simeon to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that who you were holding in your arms would be the same person to whom you would be looking to die for your sins and the sins of the world. The baby you were holding was the very comfort and consolation your people had been waiting on and anticipating for centuries, for 400 years. But Simeon isn't the only person there. We're told that a prophet named Anna was also present. And like Simeon, uh, we don't know much about Anna besides what's just in these few verses right here. But we know she's 84 years old. She was married once. She was widowed. And now she has devoted the rest of her days to God and now works in the temple. And when she saw the baby Jesus, her first reaction was to give thanks to God for delivering on his promises to send a Messiah who would live and die for his people. Anna could not keep quiet about finally seeing the consolation of Israel in flesh and blood. We're told she spoke to everyone who would listen who had also been expecting the consolation of Israel to be the Messiah, just to see God fulfilling his promises. Simeon and Anna were the first people to know that the wait was over, besides Mary and Joseph. Even if there was more to be done and life left to live for Simeon and Anna, they could go forward knowing that God keeps his word and he continues to do so. They had nothing left to worry over. But what about us? We still have life left to live. And the promise that Christ will return finally and fully to inaugurate his uh, final kingdom, that has yet to happen. The second coming of Christ is still yet to come. So now it's our turn to wait. Like Simeon and Anna and all the faithful people who had come before us. Simeon and Anna have so much to teach us about how to wait and how to do it well. I see two things that they did that helped them and can help us as well. The first one is pretty simple. Rely on the Holy Spirit. We find that one of the first things Scripture tells us about Simeon is that he was righteous and devout and moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God gave him a vision that he would see the Messiah before dying. The Spirit of God told him when to go to the temple to make that promise a reality, to fulfill that promise. So he was a man who moved when the Spirit said to move. Now one question we often get asked is, how do I know when God is speaking? And that's kind of a loaded question because that's usually not the real question people are asking. Most often what they're saying is, I've never heard God speak, and I worry about being saved. I don't hear him, so he must not be speaking to me. For six weeks we've been studying the book of Acts in Sunday school, and we've heard some sermons from the book of Acts in worship. And one of the recurring themes has been that the Spirit moves and people are saved. That's how a person knows they are saved. The Spirit lives within them. What Acts is concerned about is that the Spirit moves where it wants to, and once it lands on a person, it never leaves. That's what divides the Old Testament and the New Testament. A person could receive the Holy Spirit before Christ came, but it came for a purpose and for a time, and then it left that person. The Spirit moved about where it wanted to. But for the church, for us, the Holy Spirit enters the ones that God has chosen, and then it never leaves. In fact, when we, when we read Simeon's story, it appears that the Spirit moved at least twice, two different times. One time the Spirit fell on him and gave him a vision. Then it fell again and moved him to go into the temple. 
But for the believer, the Spirit comes and the Spirit never leaves. The Spirit stays. So what do you do when you feel a drought and you're waiting on God's Spirit to move you, to help you make decisions, to help you understand life and what's going on? Well, I think we need to clarify what relying on the Spirit really means. Because when we read the book of Acts, it gets clear for us. One phrase in that book especially gets, uh, gets repeated over and over again. The Spirit fell. The Spirit fell. The Spirit fell. But as the book continues, that phrase begins to slowly kind of drop out of usage because the Spirit has fallen on a believer and doesn't need to again. One falling of the Spirit is sufficient. Now, the Spirit will, of course, move people. It will convict them of sin. It will work on you over and over and over again. It will guide us into truth. I believe that with all of my heart. So be comforted knowing that the Holy Spirit never leaves. If you feel like you're not hearing from God, if you're not hearing what God is saying to you, rest assured there are not a lot of people out there wandering the street who have never given a moment's thought to Jesus who worry if they have grieved the Holy Spirit. If you want the Spirit, that's a sign of good health. Because only the converted can even want the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Even the simplest confession of faith is a moving of the Holy Spirit. The saved can know they are saved, and only the saved can know they are saved. For every Simeon, there are 10,000 Nick Colstons who have never had a vision. But I do know when the Spirit falls and convicts me of sin, and I know when the Spirit falls and wants me to speak. For Simeon, it wasn't so much that the Spirit moved. It's more that when the Spirit did move, Simeon trusted and obeyed. The Spirit moves in me, and the Spirit moves in you if you're a believer. He quietly guides all believers who patiently wait on him to move. The next way that we realize the, how God wants us to wait is that we worship in the Spirit. We worship in the Spirit. Anna is said to have lived in the temple and worshipped night and day. I think by noting her age, Luke is intending to tell us just how long she has devoted her life to being a prophet. Women married very young, back in, in the biblical time, and often they were still teenagers, very young teenagers, and she was only married for seven years. So it's not crazy to think that she may have been 21 when she moved into the temple to be a prophet and to work and live in the temple. Now she's a widow and lives there and works there full time. Widows, no matter how young they were, often had a very difficult time and very few options to care for themselves. So we can safely assume that she had served as a prophet in the temple for the majority of her life. Prophet is best described as someone who simply repeats what God has already said. Most prophecy that has to do with telling the future is about Christ coming the first or second time, or just in general, the end of the age. And it's already been spoken by God. Someone telling you where you'll be in five years is not prophecy. Someone telling you to declare by faith and claim that it will be yours is not prophecy. By telling us that Anna was a prophet, what Luke is probably telling us is that she was a teacher in the temple. Prophet and teacher in the New Testament are often interchangeable. She would have known the Old Testament front to back, from top left to bottom right. So her job would have been to live in the temple, be a teacher, and read and explain what God had said in the scriptures. 
This is one reason that many churches are moving back to longer sermons. Teachers and preachers are, realized, are now seeing that the assumption that everyone knows the Bible is, is, is baseless, right? People, not so much Christians, but people in the world who we just assume know the story of Noah, they know the movie Noah better than the scriptural story of Noah. Our hymns and our praise songs should be filled with scripture. Our hymns and praise songs should be filled with scripture. As should be our prayers, they should be filled with scripture. Our sermons should be explanations of what's going on in scripture. And there's also kind of a private aspect of devotion to scripture as well. Imagine if we only ate one healthy meal out of 21 meals a week. We'd never be healthy. So it's vital that we also have a personal devotional life as well to carry us throughout the week. A 23-minute sermon on Sunday will feed you, but it won't sustain you. Sometimes there is a very understandable frustration when you start a new devotional plan because you could start anywhere, so where do you start? If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, you can get demotivated very quickly when you begin in January, and come April, you're still in Genesis because it's a big, long book. Some plans have you reading small, uh, small chunks of Scripture every day from multiple books. Just one word of advice from one person. Do everything you can to read through one book of the Bible in as few sittings as possible, and then do that over again. Read through it multiple times. You'll have the right context for everything you're reading. You'll get the full range of meaning for what the author intended. One other piece of advice is never go it alone. I'm 30 years old and I've started roughly 30 workout plans. I'm 30 years old, and I've completed nearly zero workout plans. Why is that? I like to run alone. I like to work out alone. And there might be a time and a place for that, but if I was someone who was serious and wanted to train for a marathon, I would need someone beside me the whole way to urge, urge me on to encourage me. We need people. We need other believers beside us the whole way. Sometimes people ask us why we don't have a dedicated small group ministry. One reason is simple, because they use a lot of resources, and we're already seeing a lot of success in Sunday school and other groups that use a lot of our precious resources. One other reason, it is statistically very, very difficult to get more than 20% of any size congregation involved in a home small group. There's just so little accountability. But we have about 50% or more on any given Sunday in Sunday school. And then you add that to like a Wednesday night refuel, and we have a lot of people being fed very well all throughout the week. But when people ask why we don't have a regular small group ministry, we could respond, actually we do, we have about 250 small groups, they just don't know it. The family is the original God-ordained small group. God created the family for the human race, to be in a family. That's why the New Testament uses sibling language like brother when it talks about how believers are supposed to relate to each other. Marriage in Scripture is the image of Christ and his church. Brother and sister is the image of believer and believer. Martin Luther said that family life is the training ground for faith, hope, love, patience, and prayer. I've only been a dad for like 10 days, but I need a lot of patience and prayer. There are a lot of great resources to help parents lead family devotionals, but the basics are quite simple. Bible reading and prayer. Keep it simple, stupid. 
Miss a, miss a baseball practice every once in a while to pray with your kids like it actually matters to you. Let them see you read the scriptures to them like it actually matters to you. It is very important that you show them how important faith is to you. Otherwise, they will not think it's important to anybody, themselves especially. If family worship is awkward at first, just remember so was walking, and now you don't even think about it. So no one is denying that waiting is hard. That's why Advent exists, to help us and remind us of what we're expecting. But the converted don't wait like the rest of the world. We wait with anticipation that God is still moving and still has promises to fulfill. And he has a lot left to teach us through Scripture and through prayer. So while we wait, we rely on the Spirit of God and we worship him. The second advent of Christ could begin at any moment, and that is our hope that it would. So may we be like Simeon and Anna, who trusted the Holy Spirit, and like Anna and Simeon, who worshiped night and day. Let's pray. Lord God, who was and is and is to come, we thank you that we have this season to learn how to wait for you. We don't hope like the lost, because our hope is secure. May we look forward to your second coming so that we know your full presence without the stain of sin. Please comfort those who seek to hear your voice. Help us use this time over the next four weeks to listen to the quiet voice of your spirit and to have our worship spring from your word. In your holy name we pray. Amen.